0: Today's scripture reading is Genesis 4, chapters I mean chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. You can follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screen behind me. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, "I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord." And she again bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground The Lord said to him, "Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should, should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Caden knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. And Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Juwel, and he fathered all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a foreigner of he was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nehemiah. Lemech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lemech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This
1: morning we continue our series through the book of Genesis. The last couple of weeks we've been in chapter 3, which... It's a difficult text in many regards. To be sure, you see the grace of God in chapter 3 in the sense that He gives a glorious promise, but it's also a really… it's a narration of a really bad day, isn't it? With ominous overtones that you're sort of waiting to see worked out, and that's where we pick up this morning, sort of the outworking of the ominous overtones. In Genesis 4, we get our first glimpse at life outside the garden, and it is not pretty. We begin to witness what is a downward spiral that we'll watch unfold over the next several chapters. And yet, we also get a front row seat of watching God work, even in the midst of the most bleak situation, the kind of situations I think we would often look at and say, no way, this one's over, that is not redeemable, and yet we're going to watch God redeem it. And so, in the midst of the challenge of this passage, there is most certainly a message of encouragement here for us. So, if you're not already there, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4. If you're following along in the outline in your gathering guide, we begin with the apparent triumph of the seed of the serpent. For, for the reader of Genesis, you, you, you roll right into chapter 4 with the fall of man and the results thereof right at the forefront of your mind, right? Adam and Eve have just rebelled. Sin is now in the world. We see the results of sin. We see the man and woman hiding from each other. We see them hiding from God. We see them blaming people, blaming God. And what's more, we see judgment, don't we? Relationships between man and God, relationships between man and woman forever changed, forever marred. There there was judgment for both the man and the woman in the realm of their primary responsibilities. Where they, would, where they would feel the effects of the fall every single day, and yet there was also a message of hope. Within the very cursing of Satan, God promised that one from the line of Eve, one of Eve's offspring, one of the seed of the woman, to use the language of Genesis, would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, would, would overturn the curse, would make right what went wrong would defeat the enemy. And no doubt this wasn't lost on Adam and Eve. Adam seems to have believed the promise and thus named his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. And this is certainly not lost on The reader who, now only a few verses later, right at the beginning of chapter 4, you read that the man knew his wife, that's biblical language for sexual intimacy, the man knew his wife Eve, and she gave birth to a son. And the assumed reaction is, yes, all right, now we're getting somewhere. Let's do this thing, little man. You got a skull to crush, which is why so much of this chapter is an absolute downer. We, we, we begin with the birth, not of one son, but two, Cain the firstborn and his brother Abel. Cain follows in his father's footsteps as a tiller of the ground, whereas Abel was a keeper of sheep. Both noble professions. No sirens going off at this point at all for the original readers. This is all pretty straightforward. But what's more, things honestly seemed pretty positive right at the beginning. And the text tells us both boys bring an offering to God. I mean, that's obviously a a good thing, right? Adam and Eve sinned, yes. The fall of man has occurred. They were driven out of the garden, and so we know life is going to be hard out there. And yet both boys, probably young men by now, are both bringing offerings to God. They're both acknowledging God. That's good, Right? The problem, however, occurs when we read that while they both bring offerings to God, Abel's offering was accepted while Cain's rejected. That's when we're reminded, oh yeah, we're in a fallen world and things are not quite right. Now, there's all kinds of discussions as to why Cain and his offering are rejected by God and Abel and his offering is accepted. And we need to have good biblical clarity that this issue is in no way revolving around the fact that Cain brings an offering from the ground, whereas Abel brings an animal sacrifice, as though animal offerings are somehow acceptable to God, whereas grain offerings are not. Absolutely not. we know from the Old Testament law, which, by the way, the original readers had, right? Genesis is part of the first five books, and we know from the law that both types of sacrifices are acceptable. Both types of sacrifices are indeed pleasing to God. Some commentators, rightly in my opinion, point out the fact that the text itself says Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's all it says. Whereas it explicitly says that Abel's offering was the firstborn of his flock along with the fat portions. And if you know the rest of your Old Testament, if you've dug into texts like Leviticus, you know that God doesn't want our leftovers. He's not okay with sort of the bottom of the barrel. He's not okay with the injured animal. He's not okay with the smashed fruit. He wants the best. He calls us to bring Him the first fruits, the, the, the firstborn. And we know that the fat of the firstborn is a particularly pleasing offering because that was thought to be the best of the best. So, I think we should probably say that Cain was a little indifferent about his offering, sort of a, eh, anything I give to God, he should be good with. He should be happy I'm bringing him anything. I'm sort of doing God a favor by bringing him something that I have earned, and he should bless me for it. Whereas Abel was very conscientious about his, wanting to give God the first and the best. What's more, it becomes patently obvious, especially as we let the rest of the Bible interpret this passage for us, that the issue we're dealing with is is a heart issue. The issue had everything to do with the heart of the one making the offering. Notice in the text itself, it doesn't just say that one offering was accepted and the other was not, right? Notice that it links the individual with the individual's offering. It says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews offers some divinely inspired commentary on this. He tells us straight up that Abel's offering was offered by faith, but it says nothing of the faith of Cain's offering. Then 1 John 3.12, we're told that Cain was actually, quote, of the evil one whose deeds were evil, end quote, which which, which makes Proverbs 21.27 very applicable here. Proverbs 21.27 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, how much more when he brings it with evil intent? In Cain's evil intent and his wicked heart is most certainly seen in his reaction when God calls him out on his faithless offering. The text tells us that as a result of God's rejection of Cain and his offering, Cain got angry. His face fell. See, if, if he had a genuine heart seeking to please God, and God comes to him and says, not this way, but this way, he would have seen the error of his way and he would have repented. But that's not what he did. God calls him out and he gets mad. He gets angry. His face fell. The New American Standard says he became angry and his countenance fell. And this almost certainly means he didn't blow up, right? You're not looking at an outburst of anger here. This is one of those he walked around sullen and vexed, right? He's mad at everybody. It's everybody's fault. I'm going to throw a pity party, my own pity party, and the more self-talk that I have, the madder and madder I get. Now, it is worth asking here, Why? Why was Cain so angry? Why did his countenance fall? And this is an important question. The text doesn't just come right out and answer, though I think we can piece it together from other things we see here in the Word of God. Pivoting off of Adam and Eve's first sin, Cain was almost certainly angry because he had put himself in the place of God. How dare anyone, even God, tell him his way of worship was wrong? In other words, Cain had de-godded God, the very sin of his parents. He had come up with his own way of worship. He had decided on his own, he gets to write the script, and he should be able to decide what kind of offering he can bring. See if his worship was at all sincere. And the God of the universe, his very creator, came to him and said, I don't accept this. He would have fallen prostrate before God, confessed his sin, and repented and done what God taught him to do. But when you de-god God, God, when you put yourself in the place of God, you make the calls. You get to judge Holy Scripture. I like this. I like this. I like this. I don't really like that. That seems a little outdated, and God, that just seems inappropriate to me. See, when we de-god God, we put ourselves in our minds, in the place of God. And if someone dare try to tell someone who has de God that they're in the wrong, oh, buddy, look out, because there's going to be hell to pay. You want to see anger? Tell someone who's put themselves in the place of God that they're wrong. Tell them they're worshiping a false god. Tell them they have impure motives, and watch the wrath flow. And that's what's going on here with Cain. And we've all seen people following this very pattern of Cain on TV or in your office or perhaps in your home or perhaps when we look in the mirror in the morning. On the flip side, it is hard, dare I say, virtually impossible to offend one who is humble in heart. Point out their sin and they'll thank you with sincerity, right? Right? Now, given that it's often mixed with our sin nature, we might struggle at first, but there is a thankfulness, not always a firing back, and a sincere asking of God for the grace to repent, seeking to honor God in everything, but for our friend Cain, nothing doing here. He's angry. His, His countenance has fallen. He's sulking around, still leading his own pity party, and God questions him, no doubt giving him every last opportunity to repent. The Lord graciously says, Cain, why? Why are you angry? You have no reason to be angry. Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Cain, sin is crouching at your very door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Friends, don't miss the kindness of God here in His questions and warning. He's making it clear, if you repent and do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't, it's going to be really bad. Now, just step back. Let's be clear, this is not works righteousness. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation. All good works that are pleasing to God flow from faith. So so it's not, Cain, if you do these three things, you'll earn favor with God. No, his point is, repent and believe and perform deeds concomitant with faith, and then all will be well, if, however, you refuse. Know that sin is crouching at your door, ready to pounce and overtake you completely. He uses the imagery here of a wild animal ready to pounce on his prey as he speaks of sin. Sin. You might think of Peter's words that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Hear God's warning, Cain, if you don't repent and rule over your sin, it will pounce on you and it will take you down. See he had every opportunity to repent. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting in Christ, you too have every opportunity to repent. But if you don't, you need to know it will get harder and harder. You're not saying God can't break through, right? But that conscience will get seared more and more. The more you rebel against Him, especially when you have the opportunity to sit in a church like here under the preached Word, the more you do that and continue to rebel, His voice grows softer and softer you will become more comfortable in your sin. You will become more enslaved in your sin. And given that we said last week that sin makes us stupid, we get to the point where you don't even see it. You begin to think that the Bible is actually really silly. Someone maybe sat under a shade tree and just whipped the whole thing up. You begin to think, perhaps you're too smart for God. Only the weak-minded need God. Romans 1 gives us an answer for this type of thinking. We see that it's actually an act of judgment. God gives people over to their sin, sort of, a okay, you want it, you got it. And there's this downward spiral where people go deeper and deeper into patterns of sin. And so, dear unbeliever, I want to plead with you as you sit under the preached word, the Lord speaks to you today. Sin is crouching at your very door. It wants to rule over you, it wants to master you, it wants to own you. And I plead with you to cry out to God, confess your need for a Savior, and ask Him for the grace to believe and the power to fight sin. Your only hope, dear unbelievers, the same as mine, everybody else is in this room. Your only hope is the promise of a Savior that we know is fulfilled in Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, went to the cross and died and took the punishment for all who would believe. And if you'll trust in him, you can have fellowship with God restored and a new and changed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, I plead with you look to Christ. Well, Cain didn't. He rejected God's kindness. He spurned God's warning. He refused to repent just as God warned his sin ruled over him. And that's really clear as we move on in the narrative of Cain. Here we see Cain lure his brother out into a field and kill him. He kills him in cold blood. They're the first homicide in the human race, the first fratricide killing his own brother, his own flesh and blood. And so, in effect, what we see here pivoting off of 1 John 3 that tells us Cain was of the evil one, is we see the seed of the serpent kill the seed of the woman, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. For now, as we move on in the text, we continue to see the hardness of Cain's heart when God comes and questions him about his sin. Cain kills Abel, and God comes and questions him, just like we saw In the previous chapter when God questioned Adam. Only the cycle of sin is worse already. Here God says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's response, I don't know. What am I, my brother's keeper? I mean, you can hear the disdain in his voice. He just killed his brother, his brother in cold blood, and sin makes you stupid, so perhaps he thinks he's hidden this from the all-knowing God. God says, where's your brother? And Cain says, in sort of modern vernacular, how am I supposed to know? What, am I supposed to watch over him or something? And as shocking as that might be to us, all the more to the original readers who understood God's Word teach that, yes, he's his brother's keeper. And in fact, for the people of Israel, he's not only his brother's keeper, he's his neighbor's keeper, right? This goes beyond family lines, but not Cain. Oh, no. Cain cared only about himself. He smarts off to God as though he doesn't know what he's done, as though God doesn't know what he's done, and yet he quickly learns what every single sinner will be crystal clear on on Judgment Day, that God knows and has seen every single thing. God speaks again, only this time the wooing is over. Here God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, God knew exactly what Cain had done which is why Cain is cursed in the next verse. And this is important to point out as we think about Cain's curse. Remember from last week, Adam and Eve were not cursed because of their sin back in Genesis 3. There in Genesis 3, only Satan and the ground are cursed. Here, Cain is cursed. See, giving and taking a life is the prerogative of God alone. This much becomes very, very clear as the narrative continues throughout the rest of the Bible. Man is created in the image of God. Cain rose up against the image of God, just like his father, the devil. And just like his father, the devil, Cain is cursed. Don't miss that the link between Cain and the serpent is strengthened here in the text. As Cain is cursed, just like the serpent, with the exact same wording being used, cursed are you. Cain, because you killed your brother, you are cursed. You read the text, and it's clear It would be a painful judgment. God tells Cain, no longer will you be a worker of the ground because the ground now will give you nothing. You're going to be a wanderer, a vagabond. And Cain's response, what is it? Well, sadly, it's more self-pity. Still, still all about Cain. No hint of remorse for what he's done no hint of confession to God. It is all about Cain, which, listen closely, this is a very important reminder to us that not all sorrow over sin is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, flip over there. This is a very helpful text to help us understand what's going on. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10. Here Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here, like in Genesis, you can have a clear and profound sorrow over your sin that is all about you and none about God. And it leads, we see here, death and destruction, not repentance and life. And we're going to see the same pattern in Esau later in Genesis. See, worldly sorrow grieves us. It grieves us because we feel the effects of our sin. But perhaps we're grieved over the fact that we got caught, and now we're in trouble, and we're grieved by that. Or we're grieved over the fact that my sin has caused problems in this relationship, and now i got to deal with that. Or we're grieved over the fact that we've caused ourselves pain, and we hate that because we don't want to be in any pain, and we grieve over it. But worldly sorrow doesn't give a rip that we've offended a holy and glorious God. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, understands that all of our sin, all of it, is ultimately against God. That's why David, after sinning with Bathsheba and then bumping off her husband, Uriah, appropriately says, against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. Well, David's not a nitwit. He understood he had sinned against Bathsheba. He understood he had sinned against Uriah. He understood he had sinned against Uriah's family as he killed their their son, their brother, but he understood that his sin was ultimately and finally, all-out rebellion against God. And David, as opposed to Cain, was broken. He was undone before God, and he repented, and he trusted in God alone for forgiveness. And his life changed, but not Cain. Cain only wallows in self-pity. Your judgment is too harsh, God. And again, the original readers must have thought, "Are you serious? Like you killed your brother? The law's penalty for that is death." Now, there's a number of things we could say about that. Some commentators want to highlight the grace of God here in letting Cain live, while others say, "No, this is actually harsher punishment." And they say he's banished to a life lived away from God. By the way, that's what. In Genesis, we're going to see people moving east. That's always moving further away from God in Moses' imagery, okay? And so, it's driven away from the presence of the Lord. As I look at it, I think it's probably both. I think we're probably looking at both the kindness and severity of God here. You see the severity of God and the fact that Cain would indeed die, but before he dies, he would be a wandering vagabond away from the presence of God. So, in effect, he would experience the hell on earth and then the eternal fires of hell. But you do see the kindness of God too, don't you? God disagrees that the punishment is too harsh, seen in the ESV's translation, not so in verse 15. And yet He does give Cain a mark. Now, we don't know what the mark was. There's no sense even trying to guess. It's a total waste of time. But He gives him a mark so that no one will kill him. In fact, he personally promises to avenge Cain's death if someone tried to kill him. And he allows him some sweet aspects of common grace, letting him get married, having kids. And yet, precisely in that, we see the downward spiral of sin. For the line of Cain moves further and further from the Lord with every generation. Cain almost certainly wandered the earth for several decades as he had to have married one of Adam and Eve's other daughters, perhaps uh, perhaps a cousin. We're told in the next chapter that Adam lived another 800 years after fathering Seth, and it says that he had other sons and daughters and people trying to push against the Bible. They're like, oh, where'd all these other people come from? Well, it's like 800 years of childbirth, so there's going to be other sons and daughters and cousins and all of that. And so, of course, marrying one's sister or cousin would be unthinkable today, even unlawful by the time this is written. But in this instance, it's really the only way forward, and how else do you populate the whole world from two people? And so Cain marries. I don't know exactly what the relation was, but he marries, and he has a son that he names Enoch. He also appears to build the first city. Names it Enoch after his son. In short, when you read Cain's short lineage… You could actually say he lives a pretty prosperous life. I mean, he's lost, but hey, he's religious, healthy, and wealthy, so he's got that going for him. He, he builds a city. His posterity build culture. We see a rancher, a musician, a tradesman, a worker of bronze and iron. Alan Ross in his book, Creation and Blessing, says, Cain and his lineage take the lead in producing cities, music, weapons, agricultural implements, in short, civilization, end quote. And it's true, isn't it? At one level, we can really say Cain prospers, which I think is a strong reminder for us that not all culture building, not all prosperity is a good thing. As cities were built and culture was being made, the slide into sin grew deeper and deeper. For we see that within five generations, we come to this guy Lamech who was clearly a reprehensible human being. The the, the narration of Cain's lineage moves quickly until it gets to Lamech, where it slows down as if Moses wants to say, look here, focus here. Now, I think it's important to point out Genesis is going to be a book of multiple genealogies, right? Some of them are going to be for the purpose of moving us toward the seed, moving us toward the fulfillment of the promise. Some of them are going to be for no other purpose, really, than to say, see this lineage? It's not it not the one, almost just moving it out of the way, and that's clearly what's going on with Cain's genealogy here. You move quickly through Cain's lineage until, again, you get to Lamech, who the text says is our first polygamist, never mind God's clear creation mandate of one man, one woman, two becoming one flesh. Lamech takes two wives, and he seems to domineer them both, as the curse of the woman seems to have implied would be sadly all too common. We, we see this domineering nature in what's often referred to by Genesis scholars as the song of the sword, verses 23 through 24. They call it the song because it's, it's poetry. Here, Lamech, a despicable man if there ever was one, almost beating his chest, kind of says, "'Listen here, little women, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say.'" I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. Now, again, this is clear Hebrew poetry, and the second line in Hebrew poetry usually repeats the first line for emphasis or to add more color. So, Lamech is almost certainly not saying he's killed two different men here, but he is bragging about killing this young man, and and, and he's boasting about it. No hint of remorse here for destroying the image of God. No hint of sorrow for killing a young man who only somehow struck him. No, by the time we get to Lamech, murder seems to be a badge of honor. What's more, he boasts that while God would avenge Cain if someone killed him, because remember throughout the Scripture, vengeance is the Lord's, not ours, while God would avenge Cain, he's saying, Anyone who messes with your man, I'll wipe them out seventy-sevenfold. And that's where Cain's lineage ends, a lovely picture, really, right? The hopes and dreams of every young set of parents starting out. It's not. It's terrible, it's sad. That is where Moses stops recording Cain's lineage as if he wants to show the downward spiral of sin. We end with a sinful man ruling over his two wives in an ungodly, domineering manner, boasting of killing a man, boasting that if anyone messes with him, I'll kill them all. I mean, this, this line ends on a very dark note, not so much as a ray of hope. Man is totally depraved, ever moving deeper and deeper into sin, and for the reader, gosh, if you just stop there, it's just discouraging, right? It would appear as though the seed of the woman's been defeated by the seed of the serpent, the godly line of the woman, the hope of one to come to crush the head of the serpent appears to be dead, killed by Cain, and the seed of the serpent 's flourishing in his evil he 's out creating cities, making culture all the while spiraling deeper and deeper into sin with murder and murderous threats abounding. and yet huh, that's the point we 've all been waiting for, right, and yet, this particular narrative ends with a glorious ray of hope. We end on the note of another seed, a replacement seed, if you will, a resurrection of sorts, a resurrection of the line of the woman. And this is clear when you look at how our inspired writer describes the birth of Seth. He narrates this birth and recounts for us the words of Eve, and notice what she says, the the line seems dead, and yet he tells us that Adam once again knew his wife. She bore another son and she called his name Seth, which seems to mean substitute. And notice what Eve says. She says, God has appointed for me another seed. God has appointed for me another seed. It's the exact same language from Genesis 3.15 when God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Eve then seems to understand the connection. Moses the inspired writer certainly understands this connection. Abel was the seed of the woman, Cain the seed of the serpent, killed him, bruising the heel of the line of the woman, but God was in control. His promises would not and, in fact, cannot be thwarted by man or the devil. God appointed another seed, says Eve, instead of Abel or in the place of Abel because Cain killed Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent, seeks to destroy the seed of the woman, but God had other plans. What appeared to be the death blow to the promise is used for good by God as He resurrects the line." And again, it's clear this is the godly line. The writer wants to make that evident, and he's going to do this kind of thing throughout Genesis, again, showing us not this line, but this line. Here, sirens should be going off for the reader, sort of a ding, 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 pay attention. This is the line. God's promises are moving forward. God's promises will not be stopped. God gave another seed to Adam and Eve, and through this line, Moses says that men and women began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, that is a huge distinction, isn't it? Think of the backdrop. We just went through Cain's lineage. Not one mention of God in the whole thing. Nothing but ongoing wickedness. And here in juxtaposition, we see the seed of the woman. And through this line, men and women begin to call on the name of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, don't miss how this is pointing us forward. When we think redemptive historically, this is a a common thread in the Bible. The seed of the woman… Will appear time and again in great trouble. Dare we even say dead? And yet God's plan will not be stopped. We're coming soon to Noah. The wickedness will be so bad that God's going to wipe out the entire earth, and yet He's miraculously going to rescue the seed of the woman, saving just a few. Abraham's going to receive God's promise. He and his wife Sarah are old, as good as dead with regards to having children, and yet God is going to work a miracle. The line will be in grave danger again by the time we get to the end of this book with a famine. Looks like the line could be wiped out, but God's going to send Joseph ahead to preserve the line. The nation of Israel, much later in the narrative, will get kicked out of God's place, and the temple, the unique place where God dwells with His people, will be destroyed. But God will resurrect the temple in the days of Ezra, and Ezra tells us it's resurrected on the third day, no less. And of course, all of this is pointing to the Lord Jesus, where it will absolutely appear that the seed of the serpent has triumphed. The seed of the woman, the Son of God, hangs naked on a Roman cross and dies. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. We thought He was the one. What in the world's going on? He's in the tomb. And yet on the third day, He comes bursting forth from the grave, crushing the head of the serpent. Like I said last week, that's Paul's point in Colossians 2 when he tells us that Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities. He triumphed over Satan and his minions, putting them to open shame through the cross. The seed of the woman looked defeated, his heel bruised, and yet through his death, burial, and resurrection, he was actually crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, when we think about why this matters, when we think about how a text like Genesis 4 applies to our lives from a redemptive historical standpoint, I want you to consider two things. First, our hope in the resurrection, pivoting off of our confidence in how God has worked in the past, gives us great confidence in God's eternal plan, even when things look bleak. In Genesis 4, the seed was murdered… Adam and Eve could have said, it's over. It's done. God's not going to do what He promised. But He worked in the midst of the mess. And this should help us hang on when things look dark. We can still trust God knowing He's done it before. He'll do it again. He's going to win. His plans will not be thwarted. Something I hope we'll learn to say as we go through this study through Genesis is something along the lines of, that's redeemable. God can redeem that. Because we're, we're going to see all kinds of situations and messes where if we were living in the middle of them, we'd say, oh, this is so bad. It's over. We're up the proverbial creek without a paddle. God's promises have failed. And yet, time and again, He works right through the mess which is comforting for us because our lives are a mess. The situations we often find ourselves in are a mess, and yet God works in the midst of the mess. And you certainly see this in the birth of Seth. Think about it. He's born after the reader has to sit through this disgusting story of Cain and Abel and Cain's wretched line leading to Lamech, and God's answer, a baby. Here you go. Here's my answer to this here's a baby, here's Seth. The line is not dead. And by the way, it's as if he's saying, I've been at work the whole time, which brings up another important point of application, and that is hope in God is increased when we remember He is God, which implies and we're not, right? He is God, He is good, and He's working out His good plans, oftentimes in ways that are not our ways. If you were expecting God to work in a particular way in your life, and He didn't, how would you respond? Lord, I thought you were going to give me a spouse, and I thought it was going to come about this way at this time. Lord, I thought you were going to give us a child. I thought it was going to come about on my timetable. Lord, I thought you were going to save my dad. I thought you were going to save my friend. I thought you were going to work this situation out for me so that it all kind of went well. I guess you're not going to do it. Right? But see, knowing, really knowing, and believing, really believing that God's plan is being worked out. Even in the midst of what looks like absolute chaos to us, keeps us from freaking out. Worse yet, keeps us from doubting God. Even worse yet, keeps us from cursing God, blaming God, de-godding God, putting ourselves in His place at some point, pronouncing judgment that it is not okay for you to work the situation out like that. I mean, again, go back to that first Good Friday. Imagine how His poor disciples felt. You get a sense of it on the road to Emmaus. We thought He was the one. We were following Him. We left everything. We thought He was the one, and now He's dead in that tomb. (laughs) And yet it was all part of God's plan. See, I think this helps us not give up. I've talked to friends who have fallen into egregious sins, sort of crossed some of those thresholds that really stir at our conscience. And when I ask why, multiple times it's come back to, well, I just felt hopeless and I had just given up, right? They had had lost hope. But see, clarity here allows us going back to what we talked about last week to continue to fight for holiness in the reality that, that Christ has come, He entered into our mess. He conquered, and He is coming again. And knowing that, knowing that, I want to live each day in light of that. And again, certainty here helps me so much when everything around me, whether it's my job, my family, my health, the health of a loved one, my particular situation, when all of it looks hopeless, when all of it looks like it's lost, we can hold on, not give up. Because we know, we can trust God, we can keep reading His Word, right? We can keep doing what we're doing right now Coming to church, being around the ordinary means of grace, keep engaging in fellowship, keep fighting for holiness, because we know, we know, we know, we know, God has a long track record here of working things out, even if it's often in ways we don't expect. We know that because we look at the cross, we know that because we look at how He's worked in our own lives. And so, brothers and sisters, May we remind ourselves of these realities. We can trust God. He's got a long and wonderful track record. May we hold fast to Him, come what may. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that we can indeed trust You. We thank You that You are good, that You are sovereign, that You are working out Your good plans. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to celebrating what Christ has done through communion, Lord, I pray that You would give us a visual reminder of what Jesus has done, that You would affect us deeply even as we partake of this holy moment. So, we thank You and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.